welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> hey everyone, you're back on the Flex Success Podcast. You're joined with myself, Dean, and the lovely Lizzie. Actually, yesterday on an interview, um, we were interviewing someone who weren't being interviewed. Don't worry, Flex isn't going anywhere. Dean said, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Lizzie. <laughs> I did say that. To- were you nervous? No, it was just, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I, think- I, I can't stop laughing about it. Every time I think of it, it gets funnier. <laughs> so, yes. Hey, everyone. I'm Lizzie. <laughs> I'm Dean. Uh, today we're here to discuss uh, how to be a good coach because we previously did a how to be a good client episode. And we thought we'd back it up, especially because about 30% of our client base at Flex Success are other personal trainers and coaches, and likely a big chunk of our listenership, is that a word? Yes. Um, Are coaches as well. But if you're not a coach, it might be worth having a listen to this podcast so that you know what to look out for if you are looking for a coach in the future or thinking of being one in the future. Yep. I've been asked that question many a times. Like, how how do you tell who's a good coach? I'm like, oh, there's a list. There is a list. So we've come up with a list. Yeah, but this isn't, you know, the world's most comprehensive list. We just tried to think of a few points and, you know, we rounded it up to 10 and then there was a couple more that we squeezed in there. So it may be a 12-point list. Um, Some of them we're just going to skim over because it's not worth unpacking um, because they're simple enough. Some are worth unpacking. So shall we start with a couple of simples? Sure, fire away. Number one. Or me? Needs to be qualified. Need to be qualified. Experience also helps. Mm-hmm. But uh, recently, if you follow our page, you'll see that we're hiring um, in the middle of the interview process. We said in the ad that experience helps, but what we're really looking for are these other qualities in a person. And same goes with a coach. It's not to say that if someone has no experience, they're automatically a shitty coach. It just helps. Yeah. Hmm. Nothing want to say on that, really. Experience is really just the the finesse of the coaching, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like you can learn the problem with experience being used as a primary mode of whether or not it's a good coach or not is that experience can be built on bad information. Mm. Whereas if, if they're qualified, theoretically they should be coming to the party with like good information to begin with. And then the experience typically finesses the approach, takes Mm. the actual qualifications that they learn and makes it better. Because uh, online nutrition coaching is a relatively new thing. I don't know any one that's done it for 10 plus years, but I do know lots of personal trainers that have uh, been in the gig for 10 plus years that are terrible. I know some great ones too, but I know some terrible ones. And uh, the time that they've spent doing what they're doing hasn't really seemed to sharpen their skills at all. Mm-hmm. If anything, maybe they're more and more pushed into their bro science corner. So Yeah, but that will be highlighted in a couple of these ones we have coming up too. I think those yep. people that don't change typically will get found out by our list. Yeah, perhaps. So the next one is uh, the ability to set smart goals. So do you want to unpack that or shall I? You can go for it. Okay. Mm. So when a client comes on board, usually they're there for a reason. So we might say, why have you come to us? What can I help you with? And sometimes people have really specific goals. I want to lose five kilos by my wedding. So, you know, they've got a quantitative, they've got a number, they've got a date. We can measure that. Um, You know, it's realistic enough. But some people are like, "Mm, I just want to feel healthier, Um, which is an an awesome goal. But a coach should be helping you um, make that SMART, which is an acronym for specific, measurable, achievable 
realistic, which I think are kind of the same thing, um, and timely. So if someone says, I just want to feel a little healthier, you can't really manage what you can't measure. So we need to find a way to measure that. Um, Maybe it might be getting up in the morning and feeling refreshed, or maybe it might be decreasing your resting heart rate. We need to find some sort of way that we can measure progress so we know what success looks like when we get there. Because otherwise, when does coaching finish? Like, when did you achieve that goal? Um, It allows you to set up appropriate expectations Mm -hmm. and then the intentions behind both the protocols uh, or the things that the coach puts in place can be set appropriately. And then also the intentions of the client's actions can align with that as well. Hmm. Um, Otherwise, you end up basically not being happy with each other despite not knowing whether or not you've been successful or unsuccessful because the, the actual goal isn't measurable. Or well, there isn't one. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you, do you want to go? I feel like I'm talking too much. That's right. You're good at this next one too. The next one is about uh, having informed consent, which not that many people uh, are probably aware of or at least are consciously aware of what that means. So, Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's say somebody comes to us and says, Oh my God, everyone, I don't know why I'm mocking people like they're having this shit high pitched voice. <laughs> All right, let's rewind. If someone comes to us and says, not in a whiny voice, um, I see people get up on stage. They look so happy and healthy and fit. I want to go and do a bodybuilding competition. Woo. That may be misaligned. So we might say, great, let's do a bodybuilding competition. And their expectations are to feel great, to be happy, uh, to be healthier. But we know that people who get up on a bodybuilding stage, their lives are falling apart for the 20 week prep. (laughs) Usually Uh, they're not healthy at all. Um, And they usually, I don't know if we can be happy when our lives are that much out of balance. So Informed consent would mean that if somebody comes to you saying, I want to reach this goal, we let them know of the sacrifices and the risks and the potential harm Mm -hmm. uh, that comes along with achieving that goal. And if they say, you know what, I still really want to get up on the bodybuilding stage. I accept the risks. Um, I understand the sacrifices that I need to make and I still want to do it. That's called informed consent. Um, I have used an extreme example of bodybuilding. But the same goes for somebody that just wants to lose 10 kilos. Maybe they're an absolute party animal and they love going out. It might be like, hey, you know what? You can still party, you can still go out, but you might need to sacrifice uh, a Bailey's for a vodka lime soda. Like make make some sacrifices without totally uh, limiting your social life. Mm -hmm. The the entire point of this is that in order for you to be a good coach, you have to be willing to give your client the appropriate information on their, their goals, the good and the bad, the things that they may have to either sacrifice or not in order for them to have informed consent. Whereas I think a lot of uh, coaches that are essentially just out there to get a particular amount of money out of an individual will likely almost hide or not even want to discuss the potential negatives mm. in fear of losing the financial client. Uh, whereas if you're a good coach, you care more about the client, which is going to move down into one of our other points later on. Um, and that is that you give them the opportunity to have informed, uh, informed consent. Mm. Dean and I, um, maybe we won't name drop because we haven't got their permission, but coached a couple. So I coached the husband and the wife. I don't do comp prep personally. And the husband wanted to do a bodybuilding competition. So I transferred his file over to Dean for the comp prep. You remember who I'm talking about? And um, we asked them to, you know, let's all tee up a phone call and we can discuss 
the difficulties that might occur in your relationship and in life generally because they also run a successful business. Um, and they said, oh, you know what? Okay, let me think on it. They thought on it and they said, yeah, let's go for it. Hmm. So they knew as a couple what they were getting themselves into instead of being unpleasantly surprised later. Although I got a message from the wife saying, you were right. This really is, <laughs> it's really is difficult. Yeah. yeah. Now I do remember that conversation. We had a very frank one, which I think is super important. The other thing too is as a coach, especially as a coach myself who does specifically contest prep, if you don't give the client the opportunity to understand or like what they should expect out of the journey in which they want to go on, chances are they're probably not going to do so good anyway. Because mm. like if I say to a person on oh, contest prep, oh, it's all going to be rosy, man. Don't worry about it. Like, things are perfect. And then they, they hit the wall and they're like, mm, I don't like this. Whereas if you go into a situation as a client knowing that your coach has got your back, has given you the truth, uh, let you know the opportunity to have an, an informed consent, then you can go go at it with again like yeah, this is Dean told me intention. this would happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The expectations are appropriately um, set prior to engaging in the act, which is mm. really important. So the next point is having a client centric <laughs> focus. No, this this could. I mean, the overreaching target of this is that you have the client's intentions at heart. Best their best at intentions. Heart. At, sorry, yeah, you have the client's best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. I've used the word intentions too many times. Now I've called myself Lizzie on this podcast too. <laughs> that's, that's the overreaching concept of this is that you as a coach are most concerned with your client's best interests. Mm -hmm. Do you want to give us an example of uh, situations where coaches clearly haven't had the client's best interests at heart? Um, one that I probably see the most consistently is that a client will go to a coach with the intention to get a particular goal. That coach has a very specific way of doing things. And then instead of considering the client and their entire sort of dynamic, that being their psychological health, their physical health, their social health, their family health, and all of the things that constitute uh, or go towards their health, they just go, yeah, my protocol is the best protocol. And they, they force them to follow that because that's the way in which they know. Mm -hmm. It's not client-centric at all. Rather, that is a coach-centric approach to achieving a very particular goal. Because it's easier for the coach. Easier for the coach, and it takes no consideration for the client's potential pitfalls or hurdles or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem with not having uh, the ability to be malleable in your protocols as a coach and not having a client-centric focus is that you're only worried about yourself. And by doing that, you end up with clients that do end up in a contest prep, like you mentioned, hating life, not knowing what they got themselves into because they had no idea because the coach didn't inform them first. Mm. Mm. For sure. Uh, was so, yeah. it Lyle McDonald? It that was, said, I believe. Yeah, that said uh, good advice not followed is shit advice. Mm -hmm. And what we think is meant there is that, sure, you can tell someone what the absolute most optimal plan is, but if it doesn't work for them, it's obviously not going to result in any benefit because they can't follow it for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. uh, so we want to be making an optimal plan for them, not the optimal plan that everyone should follow yep. because everyone has different goals, different limitations, you know, maybe their working hours are quite demanding or they have a family um, that requires them to spend, you know, weekends. So they don't have extra time to do extra mm. cardio. So we need to find an optimal plan for the person. The interesting thing for this too is that those that are typically evidence-based, and I'll put it in quotation marks because that's sometimes now being changed, but let's just say for the purpose of this conversation, evidence-based are people that follow in line with the current literature and research, is that 
those individuals sometimes can get caught up in what is optimal based on the research. And the research is typically in a very rigid manner mm. and not really like life. So like they might be saying, oh, these clients followed this particular dietary protocol and it showed that if you put someone in a 50% deficit, they lose twice the amount of fat and they don't lose as much muscle. Mm. But then that was done for two weeks in a controlled setting and it's not actually... Based on the average. Yeah, it's not replicable in real life. And even as an evidence-based coach, people can get caught out not being client-centric because they think the evidence outweighs the individual. Mm. Uh, When often it's the individual that you should be catering to the most because they're the one you're actually talking to not the five random people in the research study. Yeah, I mean, we can use research as a guide. For sure. Yeah, it should. but it's, we're not taking, it's not, it's not, Yeah. <laughs> you know. The other one I think too, truth? like this is, this, this sort of conversation thus far, we're talking about uh, intentional client-centric focus. I think some people can have um, good intentions though and, so, and, and unconsciously make poor decisions like the writer's reflex. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain that? Sure. So a writer's reflex is when somebody is fixing problems for someone else. So let's say one of my clients is, oh, I'm always so groggy in the morning. Um, And instead of me being like, cool, well, you need to get to bed an hour earlier. Like I'm making, I'm giving them the solution. Instead of uh, catering to the writer's reflex, always fixing someone's problems for them. Instead, you might want to use some gentle questioning or um, so- Socratic questioning, we could call it. So that's when we're asking the person to reflect. Okay, so you're groggy in the morning. What do you think you could do uh, that would result in you waking up feeling more fresh? And they might come up with some solutions that would work quite well because we know that when unsolicited advice is given through the writer's reflex, people are unlikely to follow it because uh, they might feel offended uh, or they might withdraw or even if they think the advice is good, research shows that people are unlikely to follow advice um, that they've not asked for. So if we're to say to someone, tell me, you know, one between one, two or three things that you could do to wake up feeling fresher, they might come up with something you know, cool out of those three things, which ones do you want to implement? Uh, and because they've thought of it, they're more likely to actually follow it and implement it and find some benefit from it. Mm. And it also takes the stress off the coach to always feel like they're the problem solver. They always have to have all the answers. That's not actually the case. A lot of the time the client has the answers. You just have to be able um, to have the skills to pull it out of them, to create an environment where they feel comfortable and trust you enough to have an open discussion and and shoot some ideas. They might have some bad ideas, so might you, but they might also come up with some good ideas too. Yeah, that non-permissive information that nobody really wants to listen to. (laughs) I I had this often, I had this uh, brought up to myself as a problem, but uh, it was labelled back uh, prior to some of our our recent sort of look into the research and the way in which people will talk about this writer's reflex it was originally introduced to me as, as me as a personality type being a rescuer mm-hmm. in that my intention is to try and rescue people from what I perceive to be their problems. And here I am giving them all of this advice that I think is fantastic. And like, they're going to take this home and it's going to be great, but it was non-permissive um, information that I was providing. And those people probably just were like, yeah, cool, man. Like, Good information. But so you were spending all this energy on people and they weren't really... Yeah, yeah, and that's what I meant before and that it's unconscious or like non-intentional poor coaching mm. because I think I'm giving them everything they need 
when in actual fact I'm just giving them a bunch of words that they otherwise didn't probably want to hear. Mm. And if I was just better at asking more questions and evoking more information out of them and then um, and them coming to the solution, like you said, said before, it's probably one less work for myself. Yeah. I'd be a better listener. And, well, I am now, but this is back in the past. And they would also get better results. Yeah, because we're also inhibiting the client's problem-solving skills when we just give all the answers. Mm. Um, and we know they're likely to, to resist our suggestions. So even though uh, usually people with writer's reflex are the ones that are trying so hard to help, they're not really, it's not really resulting in that. <laughs> yeah, so basically what we're saying is don't help people. They don't. Can, they, can help, they can help themselves. <laughs> Basically, people can help themselves can. with gentle guidance. Yes. Yeah. And guidance. don't take that as a little snippet for this, for this podcast. <laughs> don't take that out of context, you <laughs> assholes. Go on. Uh, the next one is understanding the quality quantity continuum is what I called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that in the instance of one-on-one coaching, where it is you and the individual that you're talking to, understand that as the quantity of clients you take on uh, increases, on that continuum, your quality almost certainly will reduce. Uh, and a good coach understands what their level of quantity is for their level of quality and how they manage those two. Don't get caught up on chasing dollars. Hmm. And yes, I said chasing Liz with out a G. Uh, why do you always drop your G's? <laughs> Don't know. Queenslander. So if somebody has, you know, maybe they study full time and they have a family and they're doing online nutrition coaching and they want to spend, you know, let's say they have 10 hours free to give to online nutrition coaching. If you're spending about an hour per client per week, you know you're capped at 10. Yep. For somebody that's not doing full-time study, you might have 25 hours a week. An hour a client, cap yourself at 25 clients. Like, you know, maybe you want to spend two hours on a client, so your cap is different. Half an hour on a client, your cap is different again. So just figure out kind of what service your clients need from you, how long that's going to take you, and figure it out from there. Because we've seen coaches that started off Um, with awesome services, really good quality services, got a little money hungry, started taking people on instead of just creating a waiting list, Mm -hmm. Uh, and their service quality dropped down. If we really think about it, it benefits the coach financially to keep a cap on their clients and not just take everyone on because if their quality stays high, the inquiries keep coming in, they might be able to continually increase their prices. Um, If their quality goes down, so does future inquiries, so does their ability to continue increasing their mm-hmm. prices. So really everyone wins. Yep. Yeah. Plus you can sleep at night knowing you're a good person. Unless you're a psychopath. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and you don't really care. <laughs> of which a uh, psychopath wouldn't do the next one, which is to be more of a facilitator and not a dictator. That is true. I was going to say less of a dictator. In my role as a contest prep coach, there's certainly a little dictatorship and I understand where it's important for me to sort of dictate what the client needs to do because our goals are very time specific and they're also very severe. So don't get us wrong in thinking that nobody should ever be able to dictate some rules and expectations. It's not what we're saying, but rather to be more of a facilitator as a coach as a whole. Yeah. I mean, you can be flexible around the things that you dictate. Hmm. So it might be like, look, you've, you've hit a plateau in your weight loss, you know, science is dictating, not me. Science is dictating that we either need to, reduce your uh, caloric intake or increase your expenditure. Mm -hmm. We can reduce your intake, you know, in these various ways, which ones would work for you. Or if you choose to increase your expenditure, we can do it in these various ways, which ones do you think would work best for you? So even within that sort of prescriptive approach of X, Y, and Z, there's still ways to be flexible. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. And that's really just coming down to having a respectful partnership. Yeah. Between you and the client. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Anything else in that one that's important out of the facilitation concept versus dictatorship? Yeah, I mean, for you as a comp prep coach, there definitely would be more things where you're prescribing to your client, you're telling them, this is what we need to do. But with less extreme goals, let's say Karen's trying to lose five kilos, there's way more flexibility. There's there's more ways to skin a cat mm-hmm. with Karen. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because Karen's my mum's thing. <laughs> <laughs> but we all know a Karen. Fucking Karen. Karen. <laughs> But she's such a Karen too. Isn't yeah, she? she is a Karen. <laughs> Speak to the supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't listen to this podcast, so we can knock her out. She's lovely. Mm. I call her Marie Barone just to annoy. That her. doesn't make her sound lovely <laughs> at all. People are gonna think she's it's... crazy. <laughs> no, she's crazy. she's the good crazy. She's, yeah, no. she's a good crazy. Uh, where were we? You were saying how. Um... I think you were going to talk about guiding and not following and so on. Right, right, right. Because there's more ways to skin a cat. Yeah. So we can kind of figure out what works best for the client and see what are the things that we can adjust, how we'll have a conversation with the client and figure out what can be done, what works best for them instead of just saying this, 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 Mm. you know? Yeah. I mean, that still applies even in my domain, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. Like... Coaching for the purpose of fat loss really isn't that difficult on paper. Like, you know, engage a relative deficit, support it with a relative output, train hard. Full stop. Repeat. Mm-hmm. So there's still many ways in which I can set up the day, the week, the training, the food timing, the supplementation, the sleep, the cardio, you name it, to, to facilitate a better result based on conversations between myself and the client around the ways in which that I can help guide their prep specifically to them as an individual mm-hmm. to get the result. Mm-hmm. And even though it is an extreme example, it's actually a really good example to use because the extremity of it kind of highlights the poor management from a coaching point of view as to the success of the client. Because if we look at a bodybuilding stage, there might only be like 10% of people that get on stage in what I would classify as uh, the necessary condition to say that that was a successful prep. And that means that 95% of people are failing or 90% are failing, so to speak. And the failure isn't in that most people can't eat at the deficit necessary to get to that body fat. It's that the, the process in order to get there was too difficult to manage or too difficult to adhere to or whatever it may be. And that's likely going to be a fault of the coach potentially in how they've implemented that. And I think that happens because in contest prep, it is seen to be like, this is hardcore, so I can dictate. And if you don't follow you're just too weak and not willing enough to do what it's uh, uh, what's, required. what's required. Whereas I'm far more about the how can we both manage the situation more appropriately. And mm-hmm. I think that's why I would say in my experience from the coaching clients that I have, probably 90% get to the place in which I want them to get. Mm-hmm. But it's also because my quantity of client is not too high. Because mm-hmm, we cap ourselves. So I can spend enough time having these conversations. Yeah. Because if I had 100 of them, I might only like succeed with 10%. It's probably because the 10% I have proper conversations with, the mm. 90 other would just be the people that I just shoot numbers at and go, your fault, not mine. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we should probably follow on uh, down the list a little bit mm-hmm. to flexibility. So to be a good coach, we need to have some flexibility, which we've just touched on. Uh, and our bullet points under flexibility is being able to adapt to the plan as necessary. So we might have a discussion with a client, set a smart goal, um, you know, talk to the client about their motivation, set a plan, and for whatever reason, 
life happens and the plan needs to be adjusted. As a coach, you need to be able to adjust the plan, figure out what the problems is, talk to your client about the potential solutions. Ideally, you want them to come up with the solutions and help them put that into practice and facilitate that change. Yeah, plan fits the client, not the client fits the Yeah. We also need to be able to adapt our communication skills. Um, so some clients, if you write them a long email, there might be five questions within that email. They might reply to one of the questions. Mm -hmm. So you learn pretty quickly as a coach that you need to make things short and sweet and you might just want to reduce it to the absolute most important things. Maybe there's five things you want to ask them, but only two are really necessary for the next week. So you want to adapt your communication styles or maybe there's clients where you, you know, you agree on a plan and you kind of, you know, help them come up with some things and they don't really follow it. And you're thinking, what the hell? This is something that we agreed on. But then you later realize, ah, oh, it's because I, I didn't communicate why it was so important. Why when we reduce the calorie intake, their daily activity can't reduce as well <laughs> because then we're canceling out the calorie deficit. They didn't understand that. So although we agreed to keep steps at 10,000 and reduce calories by 300, they reduced calories by 300 and reduced steps by 3000. <laughs> mm. So we're at the same, you know, but once you explain to them why things are important, you know, so whereas some people, they kind of don't respond well to an explanation that's quite in depth because they're too busy to read it. Mm -hmm. Yep. As a rescuer at heart, like I said before, I used to pump people full of monster emails. Mm hmm. And then I started to ask the important question on the intake uh, consultation video, the catch up that we have with clients face to face via Zoom of like, how do you best learn? Do you like to read? Do you like to listen? Do you like to watch? And that those three questions are typically then what determines how I provide my feedback. And there was an individual who's like, nah, if you give it to me in written format, I have ADHD, I'm going to read the first line, then I'm just going to skip to the end. Uh -huh. So that person gets one line answers from me and then sometimes some video. Yeah. And vice versa. And that's, that's part of adapting your communication skill and also mm. your coaching style to suit the client. Yeah. The last point on uh, having good communication skills would also be able to admit when you're wrong or you've made a mistake. Never. <laughs> Not us. Because we expect from our clients to be open and honest with us and admit when they've made mistakes. Um, maybe apologize if they've been abrupt or rude or something like that. So we need to be able to apologize when we make mistakes as well. Because mm -hmm. uh, we, we have some grace or we have some, some room for, um, you know, forgiving clients for not being robots, for being humans, and they can forgive us as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would hope so. Part of trust building, <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, yes. Now, this all ties back into this whole thing thus far. You need to be a good communicator. You have good communication skills as a coach. Are you introducing the next thing? Is having yes, good I am. We just spoke about having good communication skills. Did we? No, I missed that. No, I don't think we have. We did facilitator and then we're up to communication. Oh, my bad. <laughs> we jumped ahead. Ah, uh, right. Sorry, we have a bullet point list here in front of us. And because I jumped ahead, I forgot that I did and I was going down the list. Yes. Alrighty. Press pause. <laughs> Go again. So being able to deliver what is promised on time, mm -hmm. obviously, is part and parcel of communication. Yes. Timely is super important. Mm -hmm. um, what else we got? Uh, yeah, replying to appropriate communication uh, like if you've if you've set for example like uh i'll talk about like my check-ins 
I, when I send through my check-ins for clients, that will get them by obviously in a timely manner. And then I want my client to also come back to me in a timely manner, which means my reply still needs to be timely as well. Hmm. So that anything that we're implementing can be implemented in a timely manner also. Yeah, it's quite frustrating when you, you know, you read a client's check-in, you reply to them with a couple of questions. Based off their answers, the plan will be a little different for the week mm-hmm. ahead. But they don't get back to you for four days, so you've already lost four days of the week. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very frustrating. So as a client, if you want to get the most out of your coaching, as well as expecting your coach to reply to you quickly, you need to have fast communication as well. Yep. And then we actually touched on the majority of the communication skills that we were talking about before as a part of... Yeah, that's because, uh, <laughs> cool. that's because I thought we were up to a different point. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we kind of like, we intertwined them all and that was, and that was the, the stuff we're talking about, being able to adapt your style of communication as well, whether it be video yeah. or verbal or auditory as well. So. Yeah, as a coach, part of communication would also be having an in-depth understanding of what you're talking about to the client so you can simplify and condense a lot of important information into a few sentences because mm-hmm. the client is very unlikely to have the level of interest um, in a topic like you do to sit there for an hour and read everything that you know on the topic. You want to be able to condense that into a couple of sentences so they know what they need to know to push forward with a plan. Bob's your uncle. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's certainly, like you always, I like, uh, we listen to the podcast, I listen to it less frequently than you do, The Minimalists, right? Uh-huh. And they have their pithy answers, that sort of little bit at the end where you're just like, oh, yeah, that's the bit I'm looking for. Yeah, like 15 like, word answer. 15 word answer that after a 50 minute podcast and the only thing that people remember is the 15 word answer. That's kind of clients. Yeah. So, like, as a coach, you need to have the the ability to sometimes just provide that pithy answer too, because sometimes that's all they're interested in. Yeah. As an example, I got an email yesterday from a client. Hi, Sarah, if you're listening. And she asked, uh, "How much fruit is too much?" And there's not an actual number. It's like it depends what your total calorie needs are, and does that bump you over your fiber? And like, there's all these considerations. So basically the end of it was, well, how much do you want to have? Okay, 700 grams a day. If you experience this symptom, this symptom, or this symptom, or it goes over your calories or whatever, then it's too much. So, you know, instead of giving her, um, hey, here, read this study and here's this consideration, I was like, here's a bullet point list of things you need to look out for. Mm-hmm. Bye. You know, and then she has what she needs. Yep. Mm. Cool. What's the next one? Emotional maturity. Are you sure? I think so. No, it definitely is. What do we mean by emotional maturity? When we were talking about what it means to be a good coach, I was trying to come up with some pithy ones. Yeah. And I said emotional maturity for me means lacking egotistical self-titillation. Titillation. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, is that a good coach with good intentions often educates solely for the benefit of those that are listening not to stroke their own ego to show people what they know and that they, the, that the person who's listening does not. Right. So that's if, what I mean by egotistical self titillation. They stand in front of a crowd and tell them what they know just so that they feel fucking good. Yeah. And everybody thinks they're smart, not because they actually care if people learn. Mm. And there are a whole bunch of these people yeah. in this industry. Absolutely. So an example of that would be if I'm taking on a gen pop client, Karen, who wants to lose five kilos, I wouldn't talk to her about peak week protocols, right? Because it might make me sound fancy. I can use lots of big words, but she's not going to benefit from that. When is Karen going to use a peak week protocol? Yeah. If there's a competitor called Karen out there, I'm sorry. 
Again, it's unsolicited information <laughs> for the purpose of making you feel like you're a smarty pants. Yeah, yeah. Typically. And being able to simplify language and understanding your audience. Like some of our clients do have science degrees, so we can just speak more openly to them. But for clients who don't have science degrees, maybe they work in totally unrelated fields, we need to be able to simplify language, which doesn't make us sound as smart, but that's not the point. The point is to help them learn and implement positive behavior change to help them reach their goal. Yep. If I'm using language that they don't understand, who are you helping? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I, um, I often, whenever I've given a seminar, the greatest satisfaction I get, like the goosebump moment, is when somebody says, I learned the following or I applied the following and it provided me this benefit. It's never like I finished and just went, oh, fuck, they must think I'm so smart. But there is a lot of egotistical stroking there from individuals that sometimes will just do that for the sake of their own benefit, not mm. for others. And I think the way in which people um, project their information and provide their information to the public is really actually, you can kind of see through it pretty quickly. Mm. Some people are very genuine in their in, in their uh, conversation and they want people to learn and enjoy. And then there's other people that just like to talk mm. because talking makes themselves feel good. Mm. Yeah. Totally. So the next point is being able to have the emotional maturity to have confronting or tough conversations with your client, which at Flex Success we like to call the come to Jesus talk. <laughs> if you feel a client's not being totally honest with you, that might be a come to Jesus moment uh-huh. where you're sitting them down or they're just not willing to deal with any discomfort in order to reach a goal, but then they're also unhappy that they're not reaching the goal. That might be another reason to have a come to Jesus talk. But, you know, part of being emotionally mature wouldn't be like, hey, Karen, you lazy bitch. It's more like approaching the conversation with compassion and understanding um, because that's what clients need from us and they're not going to change when being shamed into it. No, nor are they likely going to realise that they need to help facilitate that change themselves. And secondly, again, if you make the decision for them yourselves and you say, I'll see you later, you did the following wrong, you're going to do this, they're likely not going to benefit from that either. So even from a contest prep, again, to draw on my um, experience is that if I don't think somebody's ready to complete their prep, I don't typically tell them that. I have conversations with them and essentially allow them to find their own way to that answer. Uh Like I already know that that's probably the case because a lot of the actions aren't aligning with the supposed intentions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they can get there themselves, typically what then happens is there's a, a sense of relief they can relax, they can start to implement strategies more appropriately, and then they move in a forward direction. Whereas if I tell them, all they've done is just now felt like they've failed themselves and also potentially me, which just makes the next process way harder to, to get them back on board again. So yeah. again, this is the whole thing, this facilitation of the product, guiding uh, the client, that not of the product of the individual, mm. is so important. And this is all about having really good communication skills. Totally. Uh, so we're nearly there. I think we're down to the last two. Uh-huh. Being uh, committing to the do no harm concept. Now, when clients come to some coaches who aren't very experienced, haven't reflected on what it means to be a good coach yet, they might think that to be a good coach, you need to get results. And that may be part of it. But if you're helping the client lose 10 kilos, which was their goal, but they were so grumpy when they did it because the rules were so strict that it led to the downfall of their relationship, Um, or they were so tired all the time they fell asleep at the wheel and killed someone, or they were so mentally fatigued that they were shit at their job and they got demoted. Like We we don't want to harm people in the process. We need to be committing to the do no harm concept. 
um, if the goal is extreme, of course, there might be some harm to somebody's social connection because they can't eat out as often, but we still need to be reducing the harm, um, obviously followed by informed consent. So yeah. what they're up for. Yeah. Minimize as much harm as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fuck, I would hope that this goes without saying, but it doesn't, unfortunately. Oh, mm. we do a lot of fix it jobs at flex success where people have come to us like they've been through the wars with other coaches. Like you wouldn't believe some things other coaches put clients through. Um, it kind of, those clients are usually, for me at least, the easiest clients because they've stuck to such extreme plans before that the things we're asking them to do yeah. or the plans we've come up together, um, come up with together, just seems so easy in comparison that they're very compliant. Well, but I think, I think as a coach, if you're a coach who has a client-centric focus, you by default should be committing to the do no harm concept. Mm. Uh, if you're a coach who has a goal centric focus, then you are likely not committing to the do no harm. Mm. If the goal is just an objective goal, let's say, mm. I'll get to X body weight. Like, por que no los dos? You can yeah. have both. Like, why not get the client to their goal without uh, their life falling apart? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes more effort from the coach's perspective. Uh, it takes more time. It takes more attention. But we we really have a huge responsibility as as coaches not to fuck people up in the process. And mm-hmm. I, I think we should take that seriously. Yep, for sure. Mm. Last and one. And the finale. The finale, go on. I was going to say what number it was in Spanish, but I don't know that number. You do? No, I don't. I don't know how, you, I don't know how to do the numbers after 10. Okay, go. I'm not doing this on a podcast because I always mess up number eight, I think, or something like that. But anyway. Yes. That means number 12. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, a good coach. I was going to say a good client, but anyway, a good coach builds independence, not dependence. Unpack that. Really? They need that? <laughs> nah. The end goal of a coach is never to have a client be reliant on you, but rather they can be self-reliant on their own capabilities to move for- in a forwards direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you've given the appropriate education and know-how to manage themselves in the absence of your uh, guiding system, let's call it. Hmm. Hmm. So in the process of coaching, it's really important that we understand where the gaps lie. And when the client leaves you, there needs to be an appropriate exit strategy so that you know uh, they're going to either maintain the results that they've achieved when they're with you or they know how to continue their progress without you if they hadn't quite gotten to their goal yet. Um, you know, some, someone might have a goal of losing 30 kilos, but they're only able to afford 10 weeks with you. So obviously mm-hmm. you can't achieve the whole thing together. Um, and some coaches think it's a good business model not to give away all the secrets so that the clients stick with them forever. There's enough people in the world, mate. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, we can flip successful we can flip clients that are uh what's the word i'm looking for unconsciously incompetent. yes we can flip incompetent clients into competent clients and take on the next one yeah yeah easy I, mean, it, I always feel like whenever i finish to prep with an individual and then they move into doing their own stuff when they come back to me i think i don't think you need me anymore like, yeah. Because then when we have conversations, most of the time they're like, yep, yeah, cool, I'm pretty much on board. I know which direction we're going to take. Mm. But really then comfort for those individuals is because they're emotionally devoid of their own personality. <laughs> they need somebody to control that emotional part, uh, harm. 
with with some objective decision making when they subjectively are just in the hole. So, right. Yeah. But yeah, like it, I always sort of get kicks out of knowing that that person has left, knowing a lot and could manage it should they want to by themselves. Yeah. And so Alan, Alan actually has a bunch of clients this year. I'm talking about Flex Coach. Flex Alan. Coach Alan, who are um, a good handful of prep clients, they're actually doing their own preps but essentially just using him on a consultation basis because of what he's taught them in the past, hmm. which is just super cool. That is really cool. That's really, really cool. Uh, so as a coach, we need to be thinking about what are the gaps in our client um, so that they can be they, they can be successful without us. We can build independence in them, not dependence on the coach-client relationship. Usually that starts with filling some knowledge gaps. That's the easy part, I think. Um, the harder part is helping them implement that, having some... Um, consistent habits and behaviours that we know are going to help them maintain good health or weight or, or whatever it is that they need. Yep. So while we did the life after dieting, and maybe we could do a life after coaching book. Mm. I don't know what that would look like. Me neither. So the life after dieting book, guys, head to the website. Mm. Uh, all right, shall we wrap it up? We so shall. That's, that's our 12-point list. Yes. Thanks for listening. <laughs> feel like I, I could have done that a bit better instead of getting confused as to which point I was up to. But that's all right. You know, we live and learn. That's part of being a good coach, Liz. You adapted No, and you, I, you moved forward. I admitted my mistake and apologized. You did that too. You did it all. Like, <laughs> I know. We couldn't have planned that any better. Now, typically at the end of our podcast, we have a guest and we ask them for fun stuff. And you're going to play guest today, so I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay. First question is, Liz, something worth sharing for the viewers, the listeners. What do you think? they should know about what's something you've got okay. to share. Well, I think that a big chunk of the listenership is going to be other coaches. Mm -hmm. So I would like to share um, a course that me and you are currently in the middle of right now mm -hmm. that I think other coaches should go through. And it's motivational interviewing from PsychWire. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a six week course. Yep. It's relatively cheap. And, uh, it's not, it's not science heavy in the sense that you need to have an in-depth understanding of biochemistry and, you know, but it's, it's obviously coming from a psychological lens. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's helpful whether you work with comp prep clients, gen pop clients, you know. Yeah, I think whoever. the biggest thing about it is going to make you a better listener and a better questioner and also a better communicator, uh, which should hopefully allow you to uh, have far, far, far better back and forth communication with you and your client, which will help with all of these things that we've talked about today. Yeah. For the biggest thing for me that the course has done is uh, helped take the pressure off and helped me understand that I don't need to have all the answers um, because the client has most of the answers. And if I can work on my communication skills to, you know, just help get those answers out of them, then I, yeah, I, I don't, constantly feel the heavy weight on my shoulders of having to to know everything mm -hmm. have all the best suggestions yep yep very much so all right and then now the fun question round question number one what fact amazes you every time you hear it mm. what fact amazes me every time i hear it oh i've got they're all animal related mm -hmm that a huge population of koalas have chlamydia. Yeah. <laughs> that is weird. That dolphins, so a pack of male dolphins can corner a female dolphin and repeatedly rape her mm -hmm. is a fun fact. 
I don't um, know if it's fun. Otters? It's a fact. Apparently, I don't know how true this next one is. I read it on the interwebs, so it must be true. Mm-hmm. Apparently, otters um, can kidnap a baby seal, kill them, and rape their dead body. Right. Isn't that preposterous? The crazy thing is that it's so accepted in, in that animal world, but in <laughs> our animal world, obviously, horrendous. But, like, we look at it and go, oh, that's just crazy. But it goes to show you, like, what the world could be like if we were left to our own demises, mm. you know? Hmm. Yeah. Unless we were bonobos and then instead of war, you mean we bonobos? Would... No, definitely <laughs> bonobos. <laughs> and that when they are left to their own demise, all they do is have orgies. Yeah. So it really depends which animal kingdom we're talking about. Could just be one big circle jerk. <laughs> could be. Um, the next. That, that, that's a lot of fun. Oh, I've got another one. i got another one. I read it on the back of a pad. Um, and it is that cockroaches are scared of um, are scared of cucumbers. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's a stretch of the truth, and they just don't like the odor of cucumbers. Yeah, fearful of is like a bit different. Yeah, look, the pad said scared of cucumbers, and I was like, is that true? When I googled it, and it was a stretch. But anyway, also a great fun fact. I know you were after one, but there's four for you. I was also laughing in my own head about the comment of it being a pad and being a stretch. There's two words together. <laughs> just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, question number two, Liz. Yep. Okay. How did you find out Santa was real? All right. Uh, I remember the exact moment. I have no idea of mine. So when I was you. seven, my dad laughed at me and he's like, oh, you still believe that shit? And he just told me. Oh, fuck. <laughs> but anyone who knows my dad, which is no one because <laughs> I haven't right. spoken to him in years, um, is that he is just a really abrupt dude. <laughs> and just, So it doesn't surprise me because that's just the way he is. That's, yeah. that's pretty brutal, but I like it. Yeah. Again, a weird, a weird thing that we're okay with lying to children, mm-hmm. like repeatedly <laughs> for our own benefit, but then as soon as you talk to an adult, how dare you lie to me? You know? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's funny. I, but you know what? I, I remember like what room in the house I was in. I remember it was the morning. It was, it was actually like a big moment for me. I was like, really? And then I also felt embarrassed because I got laughed at. <laughs> so that's how I found out Santa wasn't real. I'm just saying, like, they tell you that Santa's real. So, like, some fat man comes out of a chimney and gives you presents if you're a good girl. Well, I didn't have a chimney. Like, that's a, yeah, no, but that's a weird concept. Mm-hmm. And we don't have chimneys too much in Australia. Mm-hmm. That if you lose a tooth, a fairy comes along and pays you money for that tooth. If the Easter the comes rabbit. around, you get chocolate from them. Like, that's a weird one. But do then you think there's, like, that, standing, like, sitting on Santa's lap as a stranger, even though they tell you not to go near strangers. That's true. There's so many weird things we do. If you if you eat the if you don't eat the crust on your bread as a boy you'll get a hairy chest. Well, fuck! What if I wanted one? I didn't know when I was a child, and now you've just ruined my opportunity as a grown man to be masculine. Yeah, who comes up with this shit? Ah, oh, yeah. There's a lot of bad ones. That's weird. Is that uh, all the questions? It is, except for this doozy. We've got a would you rather. Ooh, I love would you rather. I've asked. I've I've come up with a random one, and it's it's a bit mean. Okay. But I'm gonna go with it. Ready? I'm ready. Liz, mm-hmm. would you rather? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have no social interaction with humans and be friends with only animals, but they know you eat them. Or have no interaction with animals, but be vegan. Definitely have no. Oh, <laughs> this is, I don't think this is a very nice would you rather. I'm proud of my efforts. I came up with this on my own. Just back. before this podcast, I've come back from uh, the dog shelter, cleaning poo all day and hugging homeless animals. So, so for those of you that don't know me, I'm a huge animal lover, which is why this is such a hard question for me. This is conflicting. Mm. 
So you have to have zero interaction with animals, but you'll be vegan. So like, you know, all mm -hmm. for the love of the animals, mm -hmm. not a bad one. Mm -hmm. Or have no social interaction with humans, be friends with only animals, but they, they know that you eat them. Look, there's bigger consequences to having no social interaction with humans more than my mental health. It would also be like, what would I do for a job? Would I go insane? You'd be a part of the tribe. You'd be part of the bonobos. <laughs> that could be a good life. You never know. Yeah, I would have to live in the bush by myself or the rainforest or something. Ooh. Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the animals know that I eat them. Okay, so no social interaction with humans. Oh, right. No, and then what was the other one? Be vegan, but you don't get to have any interaction with animals. So you love them, obviously, but you don't ever get to interact with them. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to be a vegan then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's. I would assume that the vegan would choose that one. Yeah. But, uh, no, but I mean, because if, you, if you're vegan for um, ethical reasons, yeah. then even though you would love to be involved with animals because you love them, you'd rather Part of loving you'd them rather doing love them and them survive and you not have anything yeah. the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I have some friends who say that they love dogs, but they do things to actively harm dogs. Mm. Um, I don't mean that they like punch their dogs in the face. I just mean like, ah, I moved to an apartment where I can't have a dog, so I'm just going to put my dog down, like shit mm. like that, right? Mm. Like... You're doing things to, you say you love animals, but maybe you just love them when they're convenient. So I think part of loving animals is doing things that's, doing things that's uncomfortable and inconvenient for you because it benefits the animal. So there you go. That's why I've chosen that. Yep. Is that the last question? I like it. That's the last question. Can I ask you a would you rather? Sure. <sighs> would you rather? have really weird nostrils, so they're like stuck together like this. Mm -hmm. For anyone that's Voldemort. not watching on YouTube, yeah, like a Voldemort nose, so like your nostrils are like stuck to the middle of your nose. Okay, so I'm either a, a, a what do you call the people at water polo? No, I'm a dancer. What's a dancer in the water called? Uh, Underwater dancer, let's call them. Right, I'm going to ask you the question with my nose pitched like this because I'm into my voice. Um, or, or have an eye that's constantly twitching and it's like really off-putting when you're having conversations. So pinchy nose or twitchy eye? Yeah. Uh, pinchy nose. Even if you have to talk like this? Yep. I'm a pinchy nose guy. Oh. The, the eye thing would be weird because, like, you're only going to be half visual. Even, <laughs> everyone's going to always just be looking at the twitchy eye. I'd be looking at that pinchy nose, Michael yeah, Jackson. I'm still... Yeah, oh, there you go. I'm, I could be Michael Jackson. I'm okay with that. Yeah, Mine, mine's all of them. Minus the cool dance moves and the awesome voice. No, I'd take all of his And the multi-million dollars. <laughs> Get, no, I'm saying I'd be Michael Jackson with all of the good traits about the negative Right here. Mm. Okay. Without the boy touching. Yeah. Mm. Is that controversial? No. That's all right. Well, guys, thanks for listening. I hope coaches have maybe reflected on a few things that maybe they can do better or confirmed things they're already doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, and people listening that aren't coaches know what to look out for in the future. Yep. Until next time. Much love. Arrivederci. Peace. Bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.